KZSU Stanford. This is Hervey Ockles here on Tuesday morning, 10 o'clock. That is Smoke Your Troubles Away, the theme song to the Henry George program, a Columbia Broadcast System presentation of 1930. Features two bellhops, Henry and George. It's named after the Henry George cigar, who's named for Henry George. Once a very famous American economist, people estimate probably the third most famous man in America, behind Edison and Mark Twain. Now, not not so famous. Not a very famous guy now. Uh, but, uh, yeah, this is a program about economics and more. Uh, exploring the ideas and today's... How they relate to today. Open-ended, open-ended format. Interviews. Roundtables. And more. Today on the program. The Universal Basic Income. The UBI is something many people are talking about instead of, or in supplement to, social aid programs. Why not just give people money? And if we're going to do that, how do we pay for it? We're joined by the program today with a person who is bringing this idea to California politics. He is running for governor on the Libertarian Party. His name is Zoltan Istvan. He is a futurist, a transhumanist, and more. We talked to him about the UBI, how we're going to pay for it. Can it be through the land? And more. This is KJSU Stanford. That interview is going to start just about now. Uh, this is uh, Mark Molino here with the Henry George program. I am joined over phone with Jacob Schwartz Lucas of EarthSharing.org and the Robert Schalkenbeck Foundation and Edward Miller of the Henry George School of Chicago. And we are joined by author, futurist, former presidential candidate for the Transhumanist Party, and current, uh, currently running for California governor for the Libertarian Party, Zoltan Istvan. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So, of particular interest, uh, something that has made its way into your California governorship campaign is some talk about a uh, UBI for uh, for citizens as a way of uh, accommodating for the economies of the future. Uh, would you like to talk about what brought you to, you know, think about the importance of the UBI? Well, you know, as a futurist and also as a technologist, I can assure you that millions of jobs are already being lost to automation to robots and to software and uh, we're just we're just barely even starting i mean we have four million truck drivers basically out there that could be replaced in the next three to five years by driverless trucks i mean server you know food servers uh, all sorts of ways we do farming i mean any kind of industry that has uh, people that work in it can easily be replaced in the next 10 to 20 years by robots which leaves them unable to work. And of course, the government can't fund everybody through a welfare system, nor does it want to. So I have been looking at methods to create a type of basic income that would put a floor underneath everybody who loses their job due to automation and um, can then have a living wage, a place to live, a shelter, food, at least the basics. 
And uh, that's why I've been a big supporter of the universal basic income now for a couple of years, both during my presidential campaign and continuing through my uh, my libertarian campaign for uh, California governor. So when, when you first heard of, I don't know how far back this would go, first heard of the idea of you know, robots basically doing all the work, uh, did this sound more like a, like a utopia or, or hell to you? Because I guess it, it can, people can take it one of either way. Well, I know that some people see it as a hell, but I see it as this amazing new evolution of, of humankind because nobody, I mean, a lot of people don't like to work. The great majority of people do not have jobs that they want to work. They work nine to five and uh, or whatever it is, even longer, and they can pay their mortgage. You know, they can, can't afford everything they want. I think a lot of people would say, you know what, I want to get off this uh, this uh, rat wheel and, um, you know, and enjoy myself, go back and get my fourth PhD, uh, you know, sit on the on a beach in the Bahamas and learn to play the guitar or just do nothing. And in fact, just zone out and watch TV or whatever it is. It's not my choice for people to decide. I think this idea of luxury, not having to work is going to become one of the most important kind of staple ideas of the 21st century. And so people may say, oh, I don't want to you know, lose my job. But when they think about all the different things they can do with their free time, they may really decide to embrace it. Yeah, but you go back to the 1920s and people were asking, in decades, what will we do with the leisure economy where we just have too much time and don't know what to do when we're not working all the time? And they thought that would happen by the 70s, and that wasn't exactly the future we were given. But, you know, yes, yes. No, no. And I agree with you. And I think they were off a little bit because they, they did put too much faith in automation. And maybe I'm even myself right now putting quite a bit of faith. It's funny because when I think of stopping working, I think of working just as aggressively in my hobbies and in my passions, except not for, for money anymore, or maybe even a little bit of money. Who knows? It could be extra money on top of the basic income. But the idea is, we just want um, people to feel secure so they can go out and do whatever they're passionate about, um, no matter how aggressively or not aggressively that they want to do. And I think that's really true luxury in the 21st century. So it looks like uh, Ed has a question for you. Yes. Um, I was wondering if uh, you, you, your UBI idea is needs-based, if, if it's based on whether you lose your job, because it sounded for a second like you you meant it in that way and and milton friedman and a lot of other people specifically liked the concept that a a basic income could be fixed such that you don't need any bureaucracy and you you remove all the perverse incentives of regular welfare where basically when you say uh, that getting a job will reduce your welfare payment, it's a strong kind of discouragement from getting a job. We want to encourage them so that they prefer things like earned income tax credits and and that sort of thing. So earned income tax credit is sort of a, a middle approach between UBI and, and uh, 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 welfare. Yeah, no, sure. And, um, you know, first off, the, the, the studies are still out there deciding whether when you give people a universal basic income, do they tend to want to work less? In fact, some studies have showed that people that get a little bit of money say, wow, I have now a chance to be rich if I could just have my job on top of that universal basic income. So in some cases, they actually work um, harder. But in my case, even though I know I kind of opened up my statement saying, you know, maybe it would be something that's more needs based. 
I'm going to stand behind the platform that says I want everybody to have a universal basic basic income, including the super rich or the one percent. Um, at some point, you know, so so that's my platform and that's where I stand because that's that's sort of what I also want. I want it for myself, and I also want it for you know friends and family, even if they are really successful already, as well as of course as just totally eliminating poverty in America. So I think it really needs to be something for everyone. However, you can easily see just the way bipartisan politics and whatnot works that we might get to a point where something like Bill Gates said, we need to tax the robots or, you know, where you start putting more favorability for a basic income on poor people. And if it comes down to passing a legislation like this or not passing, I would probably favor something that would at least get the foot in the door to make that, you know, get basic income alive um, to reduce welfare. Because I've supported basic income even, even, even if we don't, uh, even if it's only given to the poor, because I see so much bureaucracy with Social Security, with Medicare, with Medicaid, with all these different things, all these different medical things out there, all these different kind of social systems that really take up, you know, billions of dollars. So if we can kind of put that into one simple check, I think we're going to save billions of dollars on bureaucracy. So I support it for that. But right now my platform is still that I would like everybody, including the super rich, to get that uh, that monthly or annual basic income. So you just uh, wrote an article that was published in uh, TechCrunch just this week uh, about the possible foundation base or uh, yeah for funding the universal basic income. Uh, your t- uh, article is titled, Is Monetizing Federal Land the Way to Pay for Basic Income? Uh, yeah, so you, could you comment on this this plan and what brought you to uh, to this idea? Well, sure. You know, as, as we discussed um, earlier, I'm running as a libertarian, and so it's very important that, as a libertarian, that I put forth ideas that do not increase government size, that do not give the government more power, and that do, definitely do not raise taxes. So I was looking for a method to pay for a basic income, specifically in California, but it could also apply to all of uh, all of the states where we could create that kind of wealth to pay everyone a basic income. And of course, the United States government is sitting on approximately 130 to 180 trillion dollars of federal land and resources. The numbers are not 100 percent sure, but even if we go with the middle number at 150 trillion dollars of federal land, that's a huge amount of money, especially it's like six times over to pay off the national debt, um, according to some sources and whatnot. So we have a huge amount of resources out there to tackle, to utilize. The problem is a lot of that, those resources right now are not being monetized. Sure, yeah, there's some forestry going on and then surf, you know, fishing game going on, but it's largely unutilized. So I have suggested that we monetize that land. We lease out that land to the highest bidders um, and lease it, not sell it, so that we never actually give it up, and use that leased income to start paying a basic income to people. And in California, which has literally 45 million acres of, of this kind of federal land, we could be producing approximately nearly a $5,000 a month um, basic income for every single household, about 13 million households in California, um, for Californians. I mean, it's, it's a great, frankly, it's a great way to get a lot of attention from my campaign because 40% of Californians are living um, at the poverty line below it or right above it at about $24,000 annually a year. So when you give people, you talk about giving people $5,000 a month, that is something incredible. And that $5,000 a month would require about 75% of the land in California that's unused right now to be leased out 
Um, and again, it's it's all federal land. So that's my it's very controversial because you're talking about, at, you know, to some extent, uh, at least temporarily destroying the environment in order not destroying, but, you know, utilizing the environment in order to pay people a basic income. But I side on the side of the fence where I rather get people out of poverty than worry about things like the spotted owl or the environment. I just feel that people are more important than the environment. And, um, and that's, you know, I know that's very controversial, but uh, I, I stand behind people on that one. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting distinction you make between leasing the land versus selling the land. If you look back at the history of California in particular, uh, the state owned the land and sold it off permanently for a dollar twenty-five an acre or less. And when this happens, this is our you know this is a way that they saved money on on building the railroads and saved money on some government spending. But uh, it's they got the money back then. We have nothing to show for it now. Uh, leasing would be a, a pretty major difference uh and yeah do you have any idea of just you know how how that would affect how this would be able to fund it as far as leasing versus giving it basically rights in perpetuity well certainly rights in perpetuity and selling it would be the easy way to begin funding this and get this right off the ground because leasing is going to be a tougher call but i think what's very important here is to understand how fast technology is changing the world when you talk about industry you talk about the coal industry you talk about the nuclear industry you talk about forestry you're talking about things that have remained the same for centuries well at least you know decades and some centuries in some cases because technology has not changed that quickly but all of a sudden you know we think nuclear energy is this great thing and yet we have fusion right around the corner or we have other forms of energy that are also going to be coming out very shortly at least according to a couple physicists if these industries could dramatically change how we perceive or how much funding we spend up front right now. I mean, the same thing could be said with driverless cars and when we're building, you know, new methods to overcome traffic. Well, will we have so much traffic with driverless cars? You know, and yet driverless cars may be here in 10 years quite ubiquitously. So the, the point is technology is dramatically changing our world. And when you talk about selling something, you know, you're giving it away forever. But leasing, you could like say, okay, go ahead and deforest that uh, 10 million acres of forestry in Northern California where nobody lives. And all of a sudden, in 10 years, we have the genetic ed- editing capabilities to regrow those forests in, in a quarter of the time that they normally would have grown. Their pristine beauty is there. Everything is there through genetic editing. We've also replenished uh, biodiversity and things like that. This is the modern world we're entering. What I'm trying to say is, we are changing so dramatically as a species between because of science and technology that we now need to start looking at economic things quite differently. And that's why I don't want to give anything away because we just don't know what we're going to need in 30 years. But we do know one thing. We need to get those 40, uh, 40% of Californians out of poverty. So this is a good middle ground for the time being. So even if it is involving Chinese companies coming in and doing something to California land, at least it's going to take those 19 million people uh, that are living in poverty in California out of it. And that's at least for the next 20, 30 years. We can worry about that the time after that, especially if we have the science and the technology to rejuvenate our environment to something very, very pristine. You have to understand that there are many, many companies in Silicon Valley where I live that are working on clean energy techniques that we call it, you know, bioengineering or geoengineering that are literally going to revolutionize the way we deal with the environment. We're not going to lower our carbon footprint to protect Earth anymore. That simply doesn't work with China and India developing. 
What we are going to do is use nanotechnology, genetic engineering, and other types of geoengineering techniques to radically transform um, our, our environment, our jungles, our forests, our rivers. That's the way to keep stuff pristine. And so that's why I believe the next 20 years, it's more important to take care of our, our hungry citizens, our citizens that need good shelter and schools. I, th- I think a really interesting question is the distinction between controlling the future of, of nature and, you know, the ability to just leave things alone and not really know what to do with it. A very interesting proposal, or I guess you can call it a plea, E.O. Wilson, the, the biologist, has made a plea to the world government saying that because we don't know what we're doing with it, he thinks for safety we should leave aside half the world as pure, untouched, old-growth wilderness. Uh, what do you think of that kind of idea of not changing the world, uh, all of it, and leaving some of it as something that mankind doesn't touch? Do you think there, there are drawbacks to that, or do you think it has some merit? Well, I, I, would, I would definitely agree with that, at least for the next 10 years forward. I, I wouldn't agree with 50%. In my plan, I've called for, you know, my estimates have said, let's use 75%, which would mean we would leave 25% untouched. You know, every, when I said this, for example, I did an interview with the Smithsonian recently, and when I said, I'm, you know, I would like to lease out federal land, you know, everyone said, oh, you're going to build the mall in Yosemite, great. And, um, you know, that, of course, that's what journalists are supposed to ask. But the reality is, no, Yosemite isn't going to be changing at all. I mean, some of the most pristine national parks in America are not going to be touched at all. Um, But there are vast areas out there. I mean, Nevada has a huge amount of natural resources, literally equivalent to basically Afghanistan. We're fighting a trillion-dollar war um, to to use, and yet very, very few people. I mean, Nevada has like just a few percent of people that actually live there on these resources even doing. So it's virtually untouched. And yet we're not doing much with it. Um, we're not using it to feed our people. We're not using it to improve our school system. We're not using it to help our infrastructure. We should. This this land belongs to everyone, to you and I and everybody else, every other American out there. So I think we could leave some parts of America virtually untouched. I'm, I'm all about that. That's fine. Like I said in my original article, 25% sounded good to me. But we have right now uh, $150 trillion of untouched land. So if we left out 25%, uh, percent, you know, that's a, we still got $115 trillion or $110 trillion of land we should be monetizing and using to help Americans out on a daily basis. Um, and that belongs to the people. So, you know, to some extent, I agree with uh, with what that gentleman has said, um, but um, not 50 percent, something more like uh, reasonable, like 25 percent. Well, it looks like uh, Jake has a question about uh, taxes and incentives. Yeah. So you can do things like, um, you know, set top down rules uh, by the government for, you know, we won't go into Yosemite. We won't go into some of these other public places. But uh, I wonder, Zoltan, are there any sort of more bottom-up sort of economic incentives that would lead to the same outcomes without necessarily, you know, from a libertarian's perspective, the heavy hand of government saying, you know, uh, keep out of these particular areas. In particular, you know, if you use space in the center of cities better, then you get people sprawling out to those areas less. And also, if there's just less uh, waste of space within urban hubs, um, you need less oil, you need less concrete, you need uh, less uh, minerals. So, um, yeah, I'm wondering if, if you have some ideas about how to best achieve that. 
Well, so every idea you've just talked about, and there are some libertarian ideas of a land tax and, or at least kind of, you know, a negative land tax that could also apply. And I especially like what you said about cities. You're right. Cities are just like a disaster zones, basically, with no pre-planning. But the problem with that, especially from a libertarian perspective, is all of that is going to require government to step in and say, this is how the new city has to be built, or this is how we're going to have to do it from now on. And really, as a libertarian candidate, especially not to completely upset my base, because I can assure you they're pretty upset already that I'm even promoting a basic income. Even if I don't raise taxes, a lot of people in both the national and the state party are very uh, openly questioning and challenging these ideas that I'm putting forth. And um, so, you know, I don't want you to believe that this is like a libertarian idea of a basic income. This is a, my, my idea, and I'm trying to run it on my gubernatorial campaign. But the problem with some of those wonderful ideas you threw out there, especially making more green spaces in cities, is it requires governments putting down new rules. The leasing, the monetizing federal land, you know, uh, some people have been calling it Zolt pay already, is that the idea that we don't really do anything. The people just simply get a paycheck. We cut out the places that belong to the federal government, and we say, you know, we put it out in the market and say to, you know, multi-international corporations, this is available. What do you want to do with it? Can you do anything with it? What would you offer? And, of course, we're going to get some offers, and then we're going to consider those offers and go to the highest bidder, and then you'll say, okay, great, here for the next 25 years, or for the next 48 years, or for the next 12 years, you have these rights. And all those that money gets distributed in a check that's divided by every Californian, or if it's a if it's a federal, you know, um, leasing of land outside of California, then to every single citizen in America. And that's something that's very simple. There's very little bureaucracy involved. There's just going to be a couple agents, uh, you know, uh, the real estate resource agents, whatever that sell this stuff, and the rest is just the paycheck going on. And that's why I think this this idea works amongst the libertarian philosophy is that it's not really creating any new structures, any new government rules. It's just returning um, the land that actually belongs to the people. Currently, the land's being held in trust. The government's saying, oh, well, we'll hold it for you, when, um, you know, <laughs> I think a lot of people don't really realize that there's so much money. If you take $150 trillion and you divide it by 300 million Americans right now, um, that's about a half million dollars a person. And just you know, most about 50% of Americans have a net worth that's less than $10,000. So when you talk to those 50% of Americans saying, "I'm going to give you a half million dollars of equity," um, a lot of them start saying, "Wow, that that's that they're going to be wealthy for the very first time in their lives." And I think that's where the draw is. It's a it does increase the size of the government. It just gives you know the 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 resources right back to the people who really own it in the first place. I, th I think an interesting uh, opportunity for a libertarian candidate in California, especially, you talk about our cities being a disaster, uh, you know, in, in their about in planning. The fact that cities fail is not it's it's far from a libertarian utopia right now. We have central planning in the form of our city councils, which through zoning are basically telling every plot owner what they can and can't build in their area. And this happens in every major American city. Uh, we have one exception, Houston, and even that has things like minimum parking requirements, which still have heavy market distortions. And I, I wonder what do you think the role for a libertarian candidate is to talk about California's love affair with restrictive zoning and how this might change? Well, <laughs> yeah, and you, just so you, your listeners know, you know, I... Um 
I have been a real estate developer, which is uh, in fact why I'm able to run these campaigns. I've, I've been in the real estate business quite a long time beyond my journalism. And I can tell you that I, <laughs> dealing with government bureaucracy and building houses and dividing up lots and in, you know, whether it concerns multifamily housing or whatnot, it, it's a nightmare. It's, it's a nightmare. In fact, I think a lot of times uh, we, we're doing it just to give people jobs. That's really the government's out there to give people jobs and they want to give them government jobs. That's how big of an industry it is. But, you know, the libertarians would say, and I would say, we need to reduce this regulation and let it make its own kind of rules. Just let things play out. Now, I, I want to point out that doesn't mean that it's not going to be any less of a disaster. It might be less of a disaster, but there'll probably be a lot more money to be made, and a lot of people will appreciate the simplicity and the freedom it offers. And that's a very challenging perspective because a lot of people are like, well, if it's more of a disaster, then why do it? Well, libertarians would say, look, give us disaster, but give us freedom, because to them, freedom is more important. And, you know, being a real estate person, I tend to agree with that. I want the freedom to build, develop, to rent to whom I want, to do these kinds of things as simply and as easily as possible to make, you know, resources and money. And unfortunately, right now, with so much central planning, we have just become bogged down in California with doing virtually anything. I mean, this is why, you know, there are quite a lot of developers and and people like that that are in real estate leaving saying, you know, the rules have made it so that the, the financial end of it is just not as strong as it once was. Well, it looks like Ed has a question for you. Yeah, so um, libertarianism has a very interesting history. Uh, the, the original classical liberal movement uh, of the Enlightenment is, is basically the root of it. And John Locke uh, uh, told us what the root of property rights and land basically is, which is uh, the, the labor theory of property. And he basically said that the first user of, of land through his labor mixes his labor with the soil and is therefore able to acquire property rights. However, he made a very important caveat to that, which is known as the Lockean Proviso. And he basically said that this is only viable as long as there is enough and as good of land left in common for all. And the re- reason for this Lockean Proviso is basically what we now call the law of equal liberty. The law of equal liberty says that uh, everyone who's born onto this planet is basically uh, the same and can't be treated any differently under the law. And the law uh, basically is where proper uh, land ownership rights come from. And basically, if you think about land and think about like if someone builds a fence, What's the difference between saying I own everything on the inside of the fence versus saying I own everything on the outside of the fence, right? And then everyone in that fence is basically a prisoner inside, right? So this concept of private property, when extended to its logical limits, you know, like Herbert Spencer showed, would uh, eventually uh, consume the whole planet in basically uh, 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 some people owning land and some people not. And then uh, Herbert Spencer had this phrase, he said, it would make the landless like trespassers on the planet. And this is clearly a violation of equal liberty. Uh, so your freedom to roam around, your freedom to, to just exist on this planet, to stand somewhere. 
to sleep. So uh, this this concept is basically the root of where uh, Adam Smith and David Ricardo started to say that we should tax land land ownership in proportion to the value of that land, and therefore, you know, you would have a more fair system where labor is not taxed, but uh, uh, the fruits of unearned rising windfall profits would be reclaimed by the community that's generating th those windfalls. Um, and and this, the reason I bring it up is because the the that the unassailableness of land use in cities or anywhere else, but particularly cities, is something I think that could be questioned more in, in particular when they're not paying back this, uh, their, their, the compensation to the community so that they're not trespassers on the planet. Can you phrase that in the form of a question for Zoltan? So, so yeah, I mean, so in the form of a question, I would say, uh, how would you how would you reconcile this concept of unlimited freedom for the landowners versus uh, the the right for everyone else to have equal freedom, and maybe thinking of land as not just federal land but private land as really a common uh, that's just being allocated for convenience purposes to private owners? How, how do you know if we if we have that as a base, can we? What what are your thoughts on on the dangers of that line of thinking, or 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 is there any merit to it? Well, I do think there's merit to it, and I, I do I do see this. You know, I think at some point, and this is what my novel, The Transhumanist Wager, is about. Is at some point you get to a, a, a philosophical point when you know so much wealth becomes accumulated in the incredibly rich, the one percent, and they really hold um, so much sway over the rest of the people. However, history teaches us that when that happens, there are revolutions. And, and I do support revolutions. I think that's been how history has moved forward. So while I'm a big, giant supporter of private property, um, especially as someone in real estate, um, I, I understand that you know history may not be on my side in a thousand years or something like that, or a hundred years, whatever it may be. Um, because at some point you get enough people on the planet that just say, you know, we gotta open this up. And that's how the world moves forward from a philosophical point of view. That's, this is not at all a libertarian philosophy. Um, this is just simply how what has happened. In fact, the libertarian philosophy would say, respect private property rights, which is what I like to say. That said, I want to point out, you know, just going off to a little bit more of what I'm more well known for, which is transhumanism, this idea of using science and technology to dramatically, you know, enhance or improve or modify the human experience. We're approaching a world where as you know from last week's news or two weeks ago, Elon Musk is starting a Neuralace company. We're going to be connecting our brains to the cloud. Brian Johnston, another uh, a very wealthy Silicon Valley person, has already started a company called Kernel. We will probably within 7 to 12 years have uh, brainwave headsets or brainwave implants that connect to, can connect us to the cloud. And probably within 15, 20 years, it might be ubiquitous where phone conversations like this are done directly through our mind. I mean, this, these types of science... Uh, people are now spending tens of millions of dollars in multiple startups in Silicon Valley. So what I'm trying to say is this idea of our reality of needing physical land is something that in this century I believe is coming to an end. I would be very surprised if we're not able to upload our consciousness 
into machines and not need the type of real estate that we have now. Additionally, people are creating their own types of real estate in Second Life, where I've given speeches during my presidential campaign, and people then own, you know, there's a whole new type of property rights out there where you can create things. People provide their own their own internet base. They create their own kind of kingdoms and, and fiefdoms and whatever stuff like that. What I'm trying to say is, in the machine age that we were literally entering, we may not need uh, as much physical land as you think. Uh, there are going to be different ways of existing. Uh, we are merging with machines, and those machines won't necessarily need so much agriculture to survive and things like that. So I just, we may actually make it through the 21st century without uh, this giant uh, uproar that I think you can kind of see with communism tried to it tried to take place but didn't work. But that may return. That may return through some what people what some people call luxury automated communism, where robots do all the work, and we need less and less ownership of things. Uh, now, again, I'm not saying this is any part of my gubernatorial campaign. I'm just telling you, as a as a philosopher and as a transhumanist, what a lot of the futurists think about when they think of 30, 40, 50 years into the future, and whether land rights will matter as much as they do um, now. They they simply may not. I, I think it's an interesting question. Today, people love cities. They offer a lot of things people love. And uh, when you read the works of Henry George, you see, again, he attributes a lot of the location value to being amongst people and in a city. Do you think the days of cities uh, being something people really love and, and need may be over? You know, I, I actually, the statistics would say opposite, where people are moving into the cities for opportunity. However, in the day when robots start doing everything, which is very close, this idea of automation in society, I would say, you know, in 10 to 20 years, you're going to lose hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of jobs. doesn't matter if you're a banker with, you know, master's degrees from the best universities or you're, um, you know, or somebody else in the construction industry. You're going to be replaced by a drone or robot or something else. So I think there, there is a time coming when we, we may just simply have a world where you don't need to be in a city for opportunity anymore. Opportunity just sort of happens. And in that case, people would probably rather move out into the wilderness where they can at least, you know, kind of mix with the beauty that's out there and have that kind of more carefree lifestyle that when you think of the country. But right now, the statistics show we're all kind of going to the cities for opportunity. And I guess as people lose jobs, unless they put forth the basic income, that's probably going to continue because um, even if you can just scrap by in the cities, at least you're scrapping by. I, I think you talk about like a post-scarcity world. It is interesting that we have ideas of the future, even like uh, Star Trek, where uh, you know uh, he has a, uh, a, a San Francisco downtown apartment with a beautiful view. Do you think that's still, even when you have everything, will this be a value in that? Or do you think virtual reality will make this obsolete? Well, you know, so I don't want to bet the farm on virtual reality, but I think what a, a lot of people, when they think of the future, they anthropomorphize it. They say, okay, I'm going to be a human being, and a human being is really just a bunch of bones carrying three pounds of meat on top of our shoulders, and that meat can compute a certain amount of speed, and that's how our reality gets uh, you know, processed. That's the reality of what human beings are, three pounds of meat thinking things. And um, will that continue when we're actually tied to the cloud? Will we be limited to five senses? Maybe we'll have 100 senses. Maybe our computational power will be uh, a million times what it is now, you know, I mean, I think when people really think about the future, the very first thing you can't do is think of it in terms of a human being or just anthropomorphize it. You have to think of it in terms of your own intellectual capabilities 
expanding dramatically. And when they expand, so will your values, so will your morals. And money, money may be something that um, we don't care about, we don't need. We just want survival at the very basic level. I've often said that the only job that's gonna survive in the 21st century is art. And that's because robots will never be able to do art um, you know, better than human beings because nobody can do art better. Art is an entirely subjective thing. Maybe all the economic uh, production of, of work will come from art outside of the machine world, um, from human beings, because Ray we'll just, you know, have Kurt. some type, you know, and that, because nobody can judge art. You can always uh, say, oh, my painting is better than your painting and no one's right or wrong there. But the point I'm trying to say is that whether virtual reality dominates that world, I'm not sure. I tend to think it will, but I do, just because I think virtual reality will be so much more complex than reality, we're going to make it so much more complex. But I think we'll probably at least want to keep our one foot in the door, you know, in this reality for a long time, like they do in Star Trek. I mean, personally, I like that idea of two different worlds going many, on. But I want to many, point out again that many, anthropomorphizing the future won't, won't be how we do it. I'm sorry, go many, on. Many decades ago, uh, uh, Ray Kurzweil came out with a book called The Age of Spiritual Machines, in which he argues that robots can and will do art better than human beings. And a friend of my, mine, Andres Gomez Emelson from Stanford, has argued that uh, machines could basically... Uh, optimize into figuring out what it is that activates our pleasure centers and the centers that recognize beauty in our brain and optimize for that way better than any human could ever do. No, and this can is I, this is true, but there are some people that, that take art and put, take, take pieces of, of poo and put it against uh, something and, you know, and smush it all over and call that art. You know, it's true that maybe a computer will be able to do that but I still think it'll be the one thing that we'll always be able to outdo because it, it is very random. But that said, I don't know if an entire economy could be based on it. But the basic income would certainly, I've, I've said this for a basic income, will um, we'll probably create an entire new generation of people that are much more interested in art than, than any past generation. Uh, looks like Jake has a question. You mentioned something, yeah. You mentioned something earlier, uh, Zoltan, which I... Uh, so, sort of notices a, a theme um, among uh, you know friends I have in the, the tech industry and just you know other futurists and you know first of all I want to say I'm a huge fan of uh, Star Trek I you know I definitely want that um, kind of a future where you know we're exploring the universe and everything and Nic Nicholas Negroponte uh, coined this term I believe it was him called uh, bits not bytes or sorry, it was um, bits, not atoms. And, uh, you know, it, it's the idea that uh, information is more important than physical matter and reality. And, and, and you seem to highlight that a lot in what uh, you say, Zoltan. But, and and I, I think I was of this opinion for a very um, long time. But when I, when I really focus on that particular subject, you know, I think about examples like high-speed trading, you know, the most uh, high-speed, technologically advanced, um, some of the, the most advanced software on the planet just because it's sort of a, an arms race between traders to make deals at, you know, sli a slightly faster rate. And, um, you know, it, it really does make a difference whether you are uh, downtown in Manhattan on the trading floor versus even if you're just 
you know, in, in Chicago, despite the fact that there is there no, are no Chicago's um, the center. Got to represent Chicago. Chicago is where it all happens. CME. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, my point is that um, even with fiber optic cables going the speed of light, it is an advantage um, to to be physically uh, uh, closer and. You know, I, I, unless we, you know, somehow through artificial intelligence or, or something like that, uh, become so intelligent that we're drastically manipulating the laws of physics, it seems to me that, you know, just the basic idea that objects have relations to each other and they're, you know, they're separated by space and, you know, most of the universe is space, that there is really no getting around. Uh, the fact that um, atoms matter or the lack thereof matter. Um, so, so, so I, I don't think that we should ignore the importance of uh, physical reality and, and particularly dirt and land and, um, you know, space within urban areas when we're talking about uh, the future of humanity and the, and the future of, of technology. How, how would you respond to that, that general sentiment? Well, no, I agree with you, and I, I'm a big fan of, of Star Trek, too. I think, um, you know, if you ask me, I think capitalism is going to die. I don't think capitalism is going to survive um, in uh, by the end of the 21st century. I don't think money will survive. I, uh, trading will be something else, or it will be done by, for us, because we all agreed upon that for our own, you know, spiritual and, and, and reasons of peace and things like that. But um and uh, I think it'll be much more exploration and uh, and perhaps just, you know, a lot of transhumanists uh, subscribe to uh, the, the hedonist pr principle, which is let's make it our major goal to end all suffering. And, of course, that has, you know, philosophical ideas, ramifications. But the bottom line is I don't think a lot of what we know today is going to survive. And I don't think it, it should survive. It's it's just part of the technological evolution on our sort of way to this thing called this singularity. But in the meantime, I would like to preserve the best of humanity. And right now, the best of humanity is wide open green spaces in the middle of cities that people can enjoy. And um, some some type of central planning that is done by people in a way that helps people. I don't want to say government central planning, but I want to say people have gotten together and say, this is what's best for our community. And um, that's, and, and, and I, w I don't want it to be a certain leader. I want it to be everybody had their input in a very democratic way. And I think if people do that, they're going to build beautiful cities. Uh, right now, it just seems like because of lobbyists and you know, other financial incentives, whatnot, our government is just way out of control. It doesn't mean government has to be evil, though. In the future, we could create a much more, a better system. In fact, I have advocated for different AIs and maybe the machines running certain parts of government to give us a, a better, more clear vision of what it is that people would want just because they're truly out, we could make them truly altruistic. But I do believe we're going to enter into an age that is much better. I'm a techno optimist. And I think technology, when you look at historically speaking, according to the World Bank, everything has been getting better because of technology, less wars, less deaths, less, uh, you know, um, 
more people survive, longer longevity rates. We're going to get to a, a perfect age, I hope. I just think it's going to take some time. It's going to take some also some tough decisions. Like I said, the toughest decision with writing the article between leasing land for a basic income is is the environment. I'm I'm tw- I'm a National Geographic journalist veteran, and I'm also I was a director at Wild Data, a major wildlife organization. I'm a big environmentalist. I just know that you know getting children to school who are very poor and feeding them and giving them proper housing is more important than worrying about um you know various wildlife out in the forest right now that um, that we can recreate in laboratories later and replenish the earth with so as tough it is as it is i just think we can create this world but right now we have we have you know some tough challenges ahead to take care of take care of our own so I've a I've a I guess one thing that brings us to mind is the dangers of dealing with big macro numbers. Uh, we're talking about you know 15 trillion of California land. Uh, there's a legendary tweet by I believe a, a college athlete, and I'll, I'll quote it: "If we cut down and sold every tree in the world, we could pay off the U.S. national debt and hand every man, woman, and child eight hundred thousand dollars." And uh, you see the obvious fallacy here is. I mean, it doesn't sound like a good idea to cut down every tree, and who who is going to buy these trees if there's suddenly a glut on the market? And if you look at, I guess, land values, it has a lot to do with scarcity. And, you know, if you have all these lands to sell, you know, how scarce will they be and who will be the buyers? Uh, and I guess in comparison, how do you think that does with the inherent scarcity, at least today, of urban lands where they are inherently scarce and that is what causes their value well yeah and and i think you know when i talk about a plan and i talk about big numbers i'm very realistic to say you know this is not a plan that you one day overnight do this is a plan you do in small steps at first maybe the you know how we'd implement this is the federal government say okay um zoltan your governor now let's give you 10 percent of the federal land and let's see how the leasing goes and at the very least you know not fifty seven thousand dollars annually to every household but now you can give them you know almost six or seven or eight thousand dollars annually at least that's something that they can start with and if that goes well then maybe in the next term we can you know do more and eventually you know of course one of the great things too is this california acts as an experiment for the rest of the nation to say hey this is working this is something we can do on a national level but you're right if you just lease out all the land immediately prices would plummet so you know you would have to do this in a way where you don't have prices plummet and you also have to be careful who's coming on to uh to lease your land if if russia is coming over or something like that with multi-giant oil companies you know maybe that's not something that's good for the competition here so there were there would have to be some you know sensibility to it but i think right now what the main argument is we are sitting on trillions and trillions of dollars of land while our own people go hungry, don't have access to school systems, and uh, and may not have the best shelters and things like that. There's no reason that 19 million people in California should be close to or at the poverty level. There's just no reason we should have that. Government is doing an incredibly poor job, and uh, we have the resources to do better. And you know, as a as a governor as a governor gubernatorial candidate, this is really um, you know why I'm trying to step in and say. I can do better. We can do better as a country, as a nation, and as a state. We can do a lot better. I, I was, you know, I was reading your Wikipedia page, and then I just saw, oh, he invented volcano boarding. And then I read it, and it's like, yeah, it could be a dangerous sport. There's poisonous gas. There's molten lava flying through the air. The shards of um, igneous rock will cut you if you fall. <laughs> like, sounds safe. Yeah. 
it, it's it's interesting because in the mountain in the volcano where I did it, there's a ton of grave sites from tourists that have been hit by these you know these molten uh, lava bombs, and it uh, makes it pretty disconcerting when you're doing it. You're walking up the trail, seeing these grave sites. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like um, literally hell on earth, but uh, I guess it could be well, fun. It, yeah, it is. It's a lot safer, I think, than it seems. But you know, uh, every two or three years, a tourist will get a molten lava bomb accidentally shot through them, and, and they're very much like bullets because they're boiling hot and they're being shot out of a volcano very fast. There's no way to see them in the daytime. The nighttime, of course, it's very fun because you can see stuff in the nighttime. It's always, uh, you know, uh, red, glowing red. But of course, there's no volcano boarding in the nighttime. Like in Vanuatu or whatever. Well, it happens in a lot of different places now, but Vanuatu was where you know I first did, and where the sport sort of started. When you, when you say every so often, is there is there a kind of a quantifiable uh, number on that? <laughs> I feel like I want to know my odds. Well, uh, I think the actual volcano boring turning your back to the mountain with you know you have a one in one hundred chance of of being hit, and again, being hit doesn't mean you die, but um, yeah. So I, I would say at least one in one hundred. But, you know, you wear helmets, and you can wear also shark suits now people wear. You know, that's to protect from the molten lava. So, you know, there's a lot of different methods to protect yourself in, in, in today's world, too, the way they're doing it now. But, but the shark suit, if it's going through the force of a bullet, would that offer a whole lot of protection or not? Well, actually, people wear bulletproof vests, too, now. So they will oh. the bulletproof vest and then the shark suit on top of it. The shark suit apparently protects from the, you know, keeps the thing. Uh, well, it, it really depends. Falling also is a big issue because there's a lot of shards on the ground, and they're just buried sometimes a half inch underneath the sand. Anyways, I'm just telling you what some other people have done. I, I just wore my shorts and, <laughs> uh, and went. So one, one final question. I think it looks like where time is running out. You predict far into the future. What do you feel most confident about, and what do you think is most uncertainty for you? Well, you know, listen, the, the most uncertainty is very, is very simple. Inequality is growing in the world. Inequality is growing in America, and it's worrying me. It's worrying me because we're coming to a point when technology is increasing so quickly that some of those 1% will have access to technologies, life extension medicines, and, and just lifestyles that none of us will ever, ever attain. And I think that breeds uh, a recipe for a revolution. And in order for science to progress, and this is my main thing, is I want science technology to progress at a, at a nice steady rate, we need to keep the peace in America. We need to keep the peace around the world. And as you're seeing with the election of Trump and the singer and now the elections of France and also with Brexit, things are changing. And we want to make sure that that change doesn't disrupt uh, uh, a world that moves forward, that embraces, you know, humanitarianism, that embraces the, the kind of core concepts that are very close to what has made the world a wonderful place and especially America a wonderful place. So I'm worried about inequality, and I think we need, this is again why, you know, leasing a federal land or a basic income can ha help at least make it so that that inequality does not continue to grow, or at least the, the, the poorest of us will have some kind of floor in them. And what am I most excited about? Look, I'm most excited about the science and the technology. It is incredible, the stuff that they're doing out there. It's incredible. Every single day in Silicon Valley, there are 25 brand new startups that are thinking the most insane different types of things. Some of this brainwave telepathy stuff going on is so incredible. I mean, they're talking about five to seven years tying directly into the cloud with your head. I mean, they can already do it to some extent, but I mean in ways where we could have these kinds of conversations. 
And, you know, soon billions of dollars will be going into these companies. Genetic editing, this idea that you could grow an eye on the back of your head. You know, why didn't we have one from an evolutionary reason? We're not sure why, but these are the things that they'll probably be able to do here in just a few years. Eliminating mosquito um, malaria through genetic editing. This is another thing. You know, uh, 750,000 uh, people die every year from malaria. And here we have now a essentially a scientific tool to eliminate that. These are science and technology are doing amazing things. The idea of being deaf and blind, you know, those things don't really exist if you have access to the technology. We have bionic eyes, we have the cochlear implant for hearing. So we're entering an age where there won't be any disability. And this is gonna be something very special. Like I said, what I'm excited most about is we are heading towards a kind of a techno utopia where we can all live and have our families and not have people die if we don't want to. And, and kind of embrace the kinds of goals that we always wanted and reach them. And, uh, and that's a very promising future if we can just get there. Well, it's, it's always exciting to talk to someone with so many big ideas. Uh, I, I feel we could have gone for much, much longer. But, uh, yeah, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we have all been talking to uh, Zoltan Isfan. He is running for the California governor under the Libertarian Party, has run for president on the Transhumanist Party, and has a lot to say about the future. Thank you very much for your time. I so much appreciate uh, being here. It's been great to talk to you all. Thank you so much. That was the uh, interview done with Zoltan Istvan this week here at KZSU Stanford. We talked to Zoltan Istvan about his support and plan for the universal basic income financed through the leasing of federal land we uh, questioned this proposal and the merits of it versus leasing urban land and so on and so forth so this is the Henry George program it's running here every uh, Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock stay tuned and just a few minutes, Forest for the Trees with DJ Woody Wood. We'll run for two hours, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. here on the West Coast. Explore mostly 20th to 21st century music from a grab bag of idioms. So stay tuned for that. Should be coming up pretty soon. This is Casey Shoe Stanford. <laughs>